Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good Morning Nancy, my name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And it's time for a Good Morning Nancy special. Words have no power to impress the mind without the exquisite horror of their reality. Edgar Allan Poe. Hey guys, it's our fifth Good Morning Nancy special. Woohoo! Holy jumping cats. I know. Oh, for those of you who don't know, in between seasons, we like to spice things up a bit and do a special episode about a topic or a person that we are very passionate about, and it always has something to do with horror. This season, we'll be talking about the famous American author Edgar Allan Poe. Many of you know him as the author of the short story, The Telltale Heart, and the poem, The Raven. But you might not know about his life and his other amazing works, so we're going to tell you about it right now. Before we start, I want to recognize author Charlotte Montague, who wrote an amazing in-depth book about Poe filled with like photos and drawings and newspaper clippings and all these really crazy historical facts that were surrounding like Poe and all of his friends at the time, as well as diary entries. And um, it's amazing. It's a really easy book to read, and it's also where we got most of our references. So the book is called Edgar Allan Poe, The Strange Man Standing Deep in the Shadows. Ooh. Yes. I suggest you pick up a copy and you read it. It's really great. If you're a Poe fan or you have like kids who are interested in Poe's life, this is the perfect biography to get into and get started. I have a link attached in the show notes so you can buy the book online. And I also have links to all of our other references there too. So definitely check those out. We are also collaborating on this episode with my friend Danny Benjamin from the travel blog Wanderlust on a Budget. And Danny is a very well-traveled blogger whose favorite American city just so happens to be Baltimore, Maryland. And that's where Poe's final days were spent. And that's also where he's buried. And so you guys make sure that you check out Danny's blog post. I have it linked in the show notes. And we're also going to be spoiling most of the major plot points from Poe's work. So keep that in mind as you listen. We recently received feedback from someone complaining how we spoiled most of Clive Barker's works, even though we, in our episode about him, had a warning at like the two minute mark. And so... (laughs) Get I guess it that, together. <laughs> I guess that person just skipped over it or they forgot. I don't know. But you guys don't complain because we're spoiling everything. Okay. Here's your warning. <laughs> Three, two, one spoilers. <laughs> All right. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So with that said, let's get the special morning started. Abby, how about you start us off with the early years of Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, sure. As you will soon learn, dear listener, Poe's life would be a dismal one. It seems only fitting that this tragic American figure would be born to two struggling actors. Poe's father, David Poe, was born in Baltimore to a modest family whose only wish was that their son would become a lawyer. But David was hiding a secret desire. He wanted to become an actor instead. Basically, he ran away from home at the age of 22 and joined the Baltimore Thespian Group. What a rebel! Honestly. Poe's mother, Eliza Arnold, who was the child of actors herself, had been acting since the age of nine and was already widowed and an accomplished performer by the time she met Poe's father when she was only 19. The two were married in 1807 and nine months later, Poe's eldest brother, Henry, was born. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, David's father, David Sr., was furious when he learned that not only had his son married an actor, at the time not considered a reputable profession, but that he had become one too, having joined his new wife's acting company, unquote. With Eliza being such an accomplished actor already, it can only be assumed that David had his foot in the door to become one himself. However, that was not the case. Apparently, he sucked as an actor and only received (laughs) moderate to negative reviews during his short career. 
Eliza was forced to be the breadwinner of the family and was performing up until right before Poe's birth on January 19, 1809. After Poe's birth, his mother, just a month later, was back on the stage performing again. With four mouths to feed, the couple had become desperate for money. David, who had been estranged from his immediate family, reached out to as many long-lost relatives as he could to see if they would give him and his wife any charity. A year after Poe's birth, Rosalie, his youngest sister, was born. With now five mouths to feed and no money to speak of, Edgar and Rosalie were sent to live with an old nursemaid while their parents worked. By July of 1811, David had abandoned his career as an actor as well as his entire family. He became a hard drinker and seemingly vanished off the face of the earth. No one knew what became of him until his body was discovered in Norfolk, Virginia, five months later in December. Sadly, around this time, Eliza was struck with tuberculosis in late November and died in early December of 1811. Within just a few weeks of each other, Poe's parents were both dead and he and his siblings were all suddenly orphaned. Poe was only two years old at this time. Sadly, the Poe children were forced to be split up and given away to different families. Poe was given to a childless couple, John Allen, a merchant, and his wife, Frances. Allen, who had been an orphan himself, felt pity for baby Poe and had given him the middle name Allen, thus christening the young child Edgar Allen Poe. Poe was doted on by the Allens and, much like his mother, was very artistic and could easily memorize and recite poetry even at a very young age. The Allens traveled extensively because of John's career, so little Poe could spend most of his days overseas in Scotland and England, where he attended boarding school in London. During this time, Poe would begin to write his own poetry. Surprisingly, the strict Allen enjoyed Poe's poetry and encouraged him to try and get it published even at the young age of 14. But according to Charlotte Montague, his relationship with John Allen, however, was nothing if not complicated and would be the blight of Poe's life for years. Allen did not seem to know how to treat him, one minute praising him to the hilt, the next chastising him for some oversight, unquote. There was one thing that Poe wished more than anything from the Allens, though. More so than the doting and the travel and Allen's approval, he wished to be adopted by them officially. However, for reasons unknown, John and Francis Allen refused. It's no wonder that during his teen years, Poe was desperate to find a family and, more importantly, to find love. When Poe was only 16 years old, he fell in love with his best friend's mother, Mrs. Jane Standard. Whenever he was having problems either in school or with Allen, Poe could always depend on Jane's love and attention. However, Jane was doomed to leave her mortal coil at the young age of 31. Just a year later, however, Poe set his sights on another woman named Elmira Royster, but her father did not like Poe and intercepted his letters to her. Elmira assumed Poe had moved on and forgotten her, so she wrote to Poe confessing that she had married another man. Poe, again, was devastated. However, this wouldn't be the end of Elmira and Poe, so stay tuned. At the age of 17, Poe attended the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, Ominously, Poe chose room 13 of his dorm and tried to settle into his new life. He enrolled in two classes, ancient languages and modern languages, unquote. Poe passed these languages with ease and was even given a silly nickname, Gaffy, by his classmates, who adored his wild nature and ability to entertain. However, a dark cloud loomed over him while in college after that first semester because he wasn't given enough funds by Alan to attend. Poor Edgar was forced to contact his adoptive father on a weekly basis, begging for money so that he could remain in school. One can only assume that Alan used this tactic in order to maintain control over Poe's young life, or perhaps people began talking behind his back about how he and his wife had spoiled this young boy. Either way, Poe was desperate for money and he developed two addictions. One of them would plague him for the rest of his life. Gambling, and then the one that would plague him forever, alcoholism. 
Poe admitted that his gambling had gotten out of control, and when Alan found out, he removed Edgar from university and made him work in the finance department of his merchant business. The next semester, Poe was able to return to university, but there was a bitterness in his heart for Alan, and it would remain there until the end of his days. Poe would write to Alan about killing himself if he didn't receive funds, and Alan, who did not take him seriously, continued to refuse. Poe wasn't able to afford room and board at school, so for four days he roamed the streets until he just gave up on university altogether and moved to Boston where he worked as a reporter for the Weekly Report. Unfortunately for Poe, that would only last for a month, and so he found himself penniless and jobless in April of 1827. Not willing to live as a pauper, Poe lied about his name and age and immediately joined the American army. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, using the name Edgar A. Perry, he gave his occupation as a clerk and his age as 22, although he was still only 18. He had gone even further down in social class, from university student to ordinary soldier, but at least he would have a monthly wage. Poe never saw any action, so to speak, while in the military. He was assigned to Battery H of the 1st Artillery and stationed in Boston where he did routine paperwork, secretary work, payroll, and messenger boy errands. Despite the dreariness of his new job, Poe never stopped writing creatively. At this time, he wrote many poems, some of which were even published in magazines, and he used his brother's name, Henry Poe, in order to stay anonymous. Poe remained in the military for another 18 months, during which time he was promoted and gained a 50% pay raise, but he knew that this was not what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. He asked his lieutenant if he would write to John Allen and explain to him that he was free from drink and earning an honest living. Hoping that this would make Allen accept Poe back into his home, it actually did quite the opposite. Allen thought that if Poe was doing so well in the army, then maybe he should just stay there. Poe was furious and wrote three angry letters to Alan, the last one being his farewell forever to him, although as we'll soon learn, that was not farewell quite yet. In 1829, Poe received the rank of sergeant major, and a month later, he received word that his adoptive mother, Frances, had tragically passed away. Alan's heart seemed to soften at the loss of his wife, so he wrote to Poe giving him permission to leave the military. At the end of this year, Poe published a book of poems and lived with his biological father's family in Baltimore, where he spent most of his days reading and writing and visiting his older brother, Henry. But Poe wasn't free from the military quite yet. Allen changed his tune on Poe again and made him attend West Point, America's finest military academy. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, the rigid and stultifying routine awake at sunrise, classes until four in the afternoon, drills followed by supper, and still more classes until bedtime, drove him once more to the bottle. He ignored the rules, continued to drink, and read his beloved poetry." Unquote. Much to Poe's dismay, Alan remarried and had three biological children with his new wife. This meant that Poe was now merely a charity case and would now have no inheritance after Alan's passing. In March of 1831, at the age of 22, Poe was expelled from West Point and, once again, asked Allen for financial help. Allen replied angrily that Poe had no one to blame but himself and that he would never help him again. Some time went on, and knowing that writing back to John Allen would be useless, Poe decided to show up on his doorstep where his children and his wife had met him. They explained to Poe that Allen was very ill and was unable to see anyone, but Poe just brushed past them and entered Allen's chamber where he was lying sick in bed. Allen was furious to see Poe and ordered him to leave. Less than a month later, Allen passed away a wealthy man, and none of his riches made their way to Poe's pocket. More bad news would hit Poe around this time. Um, after leaving West Point and moving back to Baltimore to live with his father's sister, Maria Clem, and her daughter, Virginia Clem, Poe's brother, Henry, died at the young age of 24. Like their father, David, he had actually died of alcoholism. The Clems were just as poor as Edgar, and by living with them, he only added to their debts. So Poe was determined to take care of himself, as well as the Clems, financially as a writer. And throughout the next three years, he began entering numerous writing contests to magazines and newspapers, where he won many, although they did not pay much. 
And just a side note, if you guys like want to learn more about the house where Poe lived with Maria and Virginia Clem, you can actually like visit this house and you can read about it in Wanderlust on a Budget. So make sure you check the show notes and read that article. So Poe then tried to find work as a teacher in Baltimore, but he was very unsuccessful. And um, you guys might think that this all sounds like pretty tragic already, but things are just about to get worse. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, one of the new magazines that emerged in the 1830s was the Southern Literary Messenger. John Pendleton Kennedy, a friend of Poe, persuaded Poe to submit a few stories to the fledgling magazine, and he obliged with Bernice and Morella, unquote. Although these two short stories weren't the first ever stories written or published by Poe, they are arguably two of his most grim earlier works. Bernice is about a young man who lives with his beautiful female cousin, Bernice. The man is a tragic figure obsessed with Bernice's white teeth while she is deathly ill with a strange disease. Eventually, Bernice dies and is buried. A few days later, the young man is awakened from a dream by a piercing shriek which sounds like a woman's voice but it turns out to only be the doorbell. When the young man answers the door, he finds his servant who informs him that Bernice's grave has been violated. The young man is horrified by this news, but soon the servant points out that the young man's clothes are covered in blood and dirt. The young man turns and realizes that he has a mysterious little black box on his shelf. He opens the box to find dental instruments and Bernice's teeth inside. Morella is about a man, our narrator, who marries a sickly yet scholarly woman named Morella. The narrator loves her intelligence but is horrified by her illness and every night secretly wishes she would pass away. One day, a pregnant Morella calls for her husband and announces to him that she is dying soon but that their daughter will live on in her place. The daughter is born healthy and Morella passes away as promised. The narrator is so saddened by these events that he refuses to give his daughter a name. As the daughter grows older, it's obvious that she is a striking resemblance to Morella. Finally, the narrator takes his daughter to a church to baptize her, and when the priest asks her name, the narrator replies, Morella. Soon after, his daughter begins to spasm. She screams, I am here, and suddenly dies. The narrator intends to bury his daughter with her mother, but when he arrives at Morella's tomb, his late wife's body is nowhere to be found. The story ends with the narrator laughing maniacally. Oh dear. Poe was actually really worried that the publisher of The Messenger would reject his gothic stories and wrote to him explaining that though these tales might be grotesque and in bad taste, they would be avidly sought after by the public. He would be right, of course, and the publisher of The Messenger asked Poe to move to Richmond, Virginia to write a weekly column for the magazine. This editorial gig took Poe away from his Aunt Maria and cousin Virginia in Baltimore, and it seemed that money, which he had always dreamed of making, didn't match his love for his biological family. The depression caused by being away from his family triggered Poe to drink heavily again and contemplate suicide. Not only that, but Poe's other cousin, Nielsen Poe, had asked Virginia, Maria's daughter, to live with him. This was a huge blow, since Edgar was keen on one day asking Virginia to marry him. Not willing to lose another lover, he sent a letter to Maria admitting his love and marital intentions with Virginia and begged that she deny Nielsen, Virginia's company. In this letter to Maria, Poe writes, quote, I would find happiness in making you both comfortable and in calling her my wife, but the dream is over. Oh, God have mercy on me. What have I to live for? Unquote. After only two months in Richmond, Poe was fired from the messenger for being drunk on the job. So he traveled back to Baltimore to be with Virginia and Maria, where he pleaded for Virginia's hand in marriage, which she accepted. At the same time, Poe's boss sent him a warning letter and promised that he would rehire him if he behaved. With his engagement to Virginia set in stone, Poe traveled back to Richmond to work on the magazine, and a few months later, he was given a pay raise and promoted to editor. In May of 1836, Poe returned to Baltimore for a few days and married his young cousin Virginia. He was 27 and she was 13. Big yikes. Big yikes. <laughs> 
Apparently, Poe hinted in his letters and journals that they waited many years before consummating the marriage, so that should hopefully give all of you listeners some relief, I guess? Uh, We are not relieved. (laughs) During this time, Poe was a successful editor for The Messenger, raising its circulation, according to Charlotte Montague, quote, from 500 copies to 3,500 and had earned a profit of $10,000 for his boss, Thomas White, although Poe, of course, received little of that, unquote. However, his book reviews for the magazine were notoriously brutal, and he lost many potential literary friends because of this. So Poe began drinking heavily again, and unsurprisingly, his boss fired him for the second and final time. After losing his job at The Messenger, Poe moved to New York City with his new wife and her mother. But the financial crisis of 1837 made it hard for Poe to find work. So he began writing again, this time a novel entitled The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. The novel is about a young man who stows away in a whaling ship and has various misadventures. It is the only novel Edgar Allan Poe ever completed. Because of the financial crash, the novel was put off for publication twice, but eventually was published in July of 1838. Unfortunately for Poe and his family, the novel was a complete failure due to its length and its abrupt ending that didn't sit well with critics or readers. The novel's unsuccessful first edition did not warrant it a second printing. According to Charlotte Montague, Quote, by the time Poe, Virginia, and Maria were back in Philadelphia, he was trying to find work as a civil service clerk. But still, there was no let-up in the family's unrelenting poverty. However, he was about to enter a golden era of writing as his maturity approached, unquote. According to Poe himself, he had just written his best short story to date. The story was called Lygia, and it was first published in the American Museum magazine of 1838. Lygia tells the story of a man, our narrator, who marries a dark and mysterious but sickly German woman named Lygia. On her deathbed, Lygia quotes English philosopher Joseph Glanville, saying, quote, Man doth not yield himself to the angels, not until death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. Lygia dies and her husband, grief-stricken, buys an abbey in England. Time goes by and our narrator marries a new plainer woman named Rowena, but it is clear that the two are not in love. A few months go by and Rowena suspiciously falls ill. While caring for her, the narrator, high on opium, sees a dark figure poison Rowena's goblet. Rowena dies soon after. A few days later, while tending to Rowena's body, the narrator notices color return to her cheeks and she stands up, seemingly alive and well. However, our narrator is horrified when he witnesses Rowena's hair and skin peel away to reveal the dark, disheveled hair and pale body of his lost love, Lady Lygia. After many attempts to secure some sort of editorial job for a magazine, Poe finally found a job as an assistant editor for Gentleman's Monthly Magazine, run by publisher William Burton. Through this magazine, Poe was able to publish William Wilson, a short story about a man who meets his doppelganger. The Man in the Crowd, about a people watcher who decides to follow a strange man he sees into a crowd, and one of his most well-known short stories, The Fall of the House of Usher, which was first published in 1839. The story is as follows. A young man, our narrator, comes upon a very gloomy-looking house while riding along the countryside on horseback. The man of the house is named Roderick Usher, a friend of a friend of the narrator, who happens to be just as grim as his home. The narrator notices that the house seems stable, save for a giant crack that leads from the floor up a wall and to the ceiling. Sickly and pale, Roderick admits that he is afraid of the house, but he cannot leave it because his twin sister, Madeline, is too sick to leave with him. The narrator learns the strange family history of the ushers, and there is a small hint that Roderick and Madeline have an incestuous relationship. Eventually, Madeline seemingly dies, and Roderick, afraid that the medical examiners will do an autopsy on her body, asks the narrator to help him bury her in the tombs below the house. 
The narrator complies, but is made uncomfortable when he notices some color in Madeline's cheeks as they bury her. After Madeline's burial, Roderick becomes agitated and delusional. He tells the narrator that he has begun to hear strange noises and that a bright, unearthly gas seems to be surrounding the house. Roderick eventually confesses to the narrator that they buried Madeline alive, and just as he does so, the doors of the house swing open and they reveal a bedraggled Madeline, who is very much alive. Madeline attacks Roderick, and they both die in the scuffle. She from weakness, because she was buried alive, and he from fear. The narrator flees the house in terror, barely making it out in time as it crumbles behind him. So the stories he wrote did well in the magazine, so Poe continued to work as the editor of Gentleman's Monthly, writing more short stories and articles for it over the next year. However, rumors were spreading that Burton was on the verge of selling the magazine. Unwilling to be jobless yet again, Poe made plans to start his own magazine entitled Pen Magazine, and he left Gentleman's Monthly in mid-1840. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, Unfortunately for Edgar Allan Poe, in February of 1841, just as he was preparing the first issue of his own magazine for the printer, there was a run on the banks bringing financial chaos. It brought an end to any hopes he had of publishing his own magazine. There was some good news around this time, however. George Graham, who had bought Burton's magazine from him, invited Poe back as editor, unquote. While working as an editor for Graham Magazine, Poe wrote one small story that eventually became the first in a new genre, detective fiction. The story was called The Murders in the Rue Morgue, and it featured a character named C. Auguste Dupin, who would predate Sherlock Holmes by almost, get this, 50 years as the first ever fictional detective in literature. The Murders in the Rue Morgue is as follows. Detective Dupin and his sidekick, our narrator, are asked to look into a double murder of a mother and her daughter in their apartment building in Paris. It becomes clear from looking at the victim's bodies that this is no ordinary murder. First, the murders occurred in a room that was locked from the inside. Second, the mother's neck had been cut so deeply that her head was barely left attached. Third, the daughter's dead body is found stuffed up in a chimney. Four, when the neighbors are interviewed, they reveal that they all heard someone screaming in a strange foreign language from the apartment, yet no one can actually pinpoint exactly what the language was. Five, some hairs were found in one of the victim's fists, and it is discovered that the hairs are not human. Everyone assumes that the killer is a banker that the mother met earlier that day, but Dupin is not convinced. The detective believes that the biggest clues are the animal hairs and the strange language heard by the neighbors. So he puts an ad in the local paper asking if anyone has lost a creature not native to France. The ad is answered by a sailor who claims that his pet orangutan recently took off into the night with his shaving razor. Dupin reveals to him that he is a detective and that he knows his orangutan is the culprit. The sailor then admits to chasing the orangutan through the streets until it reached the home of the mother and daughter, where he witnessed it murdering them. In what is now a murder mystery trope, the police are annoyed with Dupin's ability to solve crimes that they cannot, and they attempt to mock him. But our quirky, confident detective is unfazed. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, The Murders in the Rue Morgue was widely praised for its inventiveness. The Pennsylvania Inquirer said that it proves Mr. Poe to be a man of genius, with an inventive power and skill of which we know no parallel, unquote. Poe would actually write two more short stories featuring Detective Dupin. The next one would be the lesser-known The Mystery of Marie Rogette, which was based on a true crime, actually, about a woman who goes missing and eventually her body is found in a river. And The Purloined Letter, about a confidential letter that is stolen and then hidden in plain sight. While Poe was working for Graham Magazine, he had the privilege of meeting and interviewing renowned English author Charles Dickens in 1842. The privilege was all Dickens, as he was enamored with Poe's cleverness and writing. He was so impressed with Poe that he promised to find him a publisher in England. According to Charlotte Montague, quote, he was as good as his word, but could not find any takers, unquote. Dickens wrote Poe later that year saying, quote, I have mentioned it to publishers with whom I have influence, but they have, one and all, declined to venture, unquote. 
In early 1842, Edgar Allan Poe's young wife Virginia suddenly became dangerously ill with tuberculosis. Virginia's sickness added more strain to Poe's finances, which in turn added to his anxiety and depression, so he began drinking heavily again. The next short story that Poe wrote is undoubtedly based on Virginia's new illness, The Mask of the Red Death, which was published in Graham Magazine in May of 1842. The story is set in a castle surrounded by land that has been infected with a deadly disease. Many of the poor people living on the land begin to perish while the rich have safely locked themselves up within the castle, waiting for the disease to finish off the less fortunate outside. Half a year goes by, and the wealthy decide to have a colorful, masked ball filled with dancing and drinking. During the party, at the stroke of midnight, a mysterious corpse-like figure wearing a mask and covered in blood red enters the ballroom. The prince of the land, who is hosting the party, is angered by the strange patron's presence and demands to know who he is. The figure does not respond and instead enters each of the rooms within the castle which are filled with the prince's finest guests. The prince becomes even more angry and approaches the figure, but is soon overcome with fear when the figure takes off his mask to reveal that he is the plague incarnate and that no one, not even the richest of the rich, are safe from his grasp. After The Mask was published, Poe became increasingly frustrated with his job at Graham Magazine. He complained of being severely overworked and underpaid. Many of Poe's friends came to his aid and agreed that he was the sole person keeping the magazine afloat. A doctor friend of Poe even suggested that he should be paid at least 10000 a year instead of the measly 800 for all of the work that he did for the magazine. Poe confronted his boss with this issue and then took some time off to recover from a sickness. When he returned, he found that he was replaced by another editor who was earning $200 more than him in the same job. Montague mentions in her biography of Poe that it must be remembered that he was, at this time, the only known author to be making money purely off of his writing ability, whether it be for the magazine or his short stories and that copyright laws were almost non-existent in the mid-1800s. Montague also says that, quote, magazines were notoriously bad and unfortunately, notoriously late payers, unquote. After Poe lost his job at Graham, Virginia's illness intensified, and so did his drinking habits. It was at this time that he wrote The Pit and the Pendulum, which was published at the end of 1842. The story takes place during the Spanish Inquisition, and it is about an unnamed man, our narrator, who is being punished for a crime he didn't commit. The narrator faints at his trial, and then awakes in total darkness. He finds that he is now in a dungeon and is strapped to a wooden table. He also notices that in the floor there is a dark pit above him, and a pendulum with a sharp edge is swinging back and forth. To his horror, the pendulum begins to descend towards him. Suddenly, the room is filled with rats, attracted to the food that was left in his dungeon. He acts fast and smears what food he can onto the leather straps, and the rats begin chewing away at them. Once our narrator is free, the pendulum, a mere few inches away, stops swinging and rises back to the ceiling. But our narrator is not yet free, as the walls of the dungeon heat up and close in on him, forcing him to step closer and closer to the pit. Our narrator, with no place to go, begins to faint, but at the last minute is saved by the French army when the general grabs his hand before he falls into the pit. It's interesting that it, this story, as dark as it starts out, has a glimmer of hope at the end. One can only imagine what was going through Poe's mind. His wife was sick, he lost another job, and he was once again drinking himself into oblivion. But the pit and the pendulum shows that Edgar was not willing to give up hope yet. Maybe someone or something was going to save him from his nightmare soon. Poe wrote arguably his most famous short story ever, The Telltale Heart. The story is as follows. Our unnamed narrator, who is suffering from terrible nerves, lives with an older gentleman who has one pale blue eye that begins to drive the narrator mad. The narrator assures the reader that he has no hard feelings for the old man himself, but he must kill the old man so that he is free from the eye forever. Throughout the week, the narrator obsessively enters the old man's room at night to spy on him. At the end of the week, the narrator enters the room again with a lantern, but accidentally makes a noise that awakens the old man. The narrator covers the lamp to hide himself, and for over an hour, he quietly waits for the old man to fall back asleep. Eventually, the narrator uncovers the lamp, and the light hits the eye perfectly, and it glimmers in the night. 
The old man is still awake, and the sight of the lamp frightens him as his heart begins to beat so loudly that the narrator can hear it. The narrator becomes angry and smothers the old man. When the old man finally dies, the narrator dismembers the body and hides it under the floorboards. Eventually, the police show up when a neighbor calls them after hearing a disturbance. At first, the narrator is calm and collected and invites the policeman to sit and interview him, but soon the narrator begins to hear the old man's heart beating under the floorboards. The narrator becomes increasingly agitated as the heart continues to beat louder and louder, and he is confused as to why the policemen have not said anything about it. Surely they can hear it too? Finally, the narrator can't take it any longer, and he stands up screaming at the policeman that he has killed the old man and they no longer need to pretend that they don't hear the beating heart below the floorboards. The Telltale Heart was first published for a magazine called The Pioneer in 1843, but just as the issue was released, the magazine went bankrupt and Poe never saw any of the money for his most famous story. It was at this time in early 1843 that Poe tried to start another literary magazine. This one would be called The Stylus. But according to Charlotte Montague, quote, by May, his plans for stylus were in tatters, unquote. Poe began drinking again, and his family had to move from their first home in Philadelphia to another home in the Spring Garden District, where they lived in a single room. Desperate for money, Poe entered a writing contest hosted by the Dollar Newspaper, which was a weekly family journal. Poe was announced the winner in June of 1843, and the winning story he entered was The Gold Bug. The Gold Bug is an adventure story that follows an unnamed narrator who is the friend of a man whose family has recently fallen from grace and lost their fortune. The friend's name is William Legrand, and he lives alone with his Newfoundland dog and servant Jupiter. One day, William is bitten by a strange bug and begins to go mad. Jupiter asks the narrator to come visit and to see William and the bug for himself. When our narrator arrives, he learns that William has lent the bug to a sailor, but for convenience, he draws a picture of the bug. The narrator looks at the picture and realizes that the strange design on the bug's thorax resemble that of a human skull. Ooh. Soon, William begins to show signs of madness and talks about gold on an island in his sleep. He tells our narrator that he believes the bug will guide him to a fortune and insists on going on an expedition. With the bug back in William's possession, he, the narrator, and Jupiter set out on their adventure. They arrive on a mysterious island with shovels ready to dig for gold, but William notices a tree and asks Jupiter to climb it, while carrying the beetle, and then to tell him what he sees. Jupiter does, and while in the tree, he finds a human skull nailed to a trunk. Unsurprised, William instructs Jupiter to drop the gold bug into the eye socket of the skull. He does, and William measures 50 feet from the skull socket to a place in the dirt and demands everyone dig. After digging, they find a massive treasure, and our narrator asks William how he knew it was there. Turns out, William found a parchment near where he found the bug, and on it was a series of numbers and symbols asking to be decoded. Once William was able to decode the message, he was able to locate the island, the skull, and then the treasure. At the end of the story, William is welcomed back into society as a wealthy man. So the story was actually a huge success for the Dollar newspaper, and by the very next year, over 300,000 copies of the gold bug were circulated. Of course, Poe saw none of the revenue. During the summer of 1843, Poe was trying to find other ways of earning income besides writing and working for a magazine. He attempted a job at a local law office, but that quickly ended, and then he thought that maybe he should just try lecturing at a few colleges across the country. The gold bug was gaining popularity, and even though Poe didn't receive any funds in association with its circulation, he might be able to make some money as the author of this favored short story. Turns out, lecturing was a good deal. Poe was advertised as the author of The Gold Bug for a lecture in Philadelphia, and according to Charlotte Montague, quote, people also wanted to hear the man whose reviews were fearless and favorless. Poe received $100 for the evening. Earlier that summer, right after The Gold Bug, Poe wrote another short story entitled The Black Cat. The story is as follows. Our nameless narrator loves animals, and when he marries a young woman, he is pleased to learn that she also loves animals, and they end up getting a large black cat together. The cat's name is Pluto, named after the Roman god of the underworld and the judge of the dead. 
Over the years, the narrator and Pluto become incredibly close, but soon the narrator becomes addicted to alcohol and turns mean-spirited. Pluto, afraid of the narrator's new behavior, begins to follow him less and less. This angers the narrator, and after a night of heavy drinking, he, be he comes home and gouges out one of Pluto's eyes. Pluto, now completely turned off from his master, hides or runs whenever he sees the narrator coming home. The narrator is even more angered by this, and this time he ties a noose around Pluto's neck and hangs him from a tree. The narrator and his wife decide to purchase a new black cat, surprisingly, and they do, except... Unlike Pluto, this new one has a little white tuft on its chest. The narrator is unable to form an attachment to the animal and is filled with dread when he realizes that this cat is also missing an eye. He begins to have nightmares and decides to kill this cat as well. The narrator grabs an axe and attempts to kill the new cat, but the wife stands in the way and the narrator kills her instead. Filled with guilt, he hides his wife's body behind a new brick wall in the basement. A few days later, the police come to look for his missing wife, and the narrator, feeling cocky, takes them to the basement to show them his new renovations to the house. Just as they arrive, a wail, like an unholy demon, is heard coming from behind the new wall. The police begin to tear down the wall, and behind it, they find the wife's corpse, along with the new cat standing on the wife's head. By 1844, New York City was the focal point for writing and publication in the United States, so it would make sense for Poe to uproot his life in Philly and risk taking Virginia, who was still deathly ill, and her mother to Manhattan. In April of 1844, the three of them were in the city. According to Montague, quote, he, Poe, had been writing odd pieces for the New York Evening Mirror for about 18 months when the editor, Nathaniel Willis, offered him a job as assistant editor and, quote-unquote, mechanical paragraphist, unquote. While in New York, Poe began dipping his quill, so to speak, into writing poetry again. Elizabeth Barrett, whose writing he greatly admired, was a famous English poet at the time. He wanted to practice using her unique, musical technique and write his own epic poem. The poem would be The Raven. Half inspired by Barrett's writing style in Charles Dickens' novel Barnaby Rudge, the poem is about a man whose love has passed away. As he sits in his chamber, he hears a tapping at his door. It's a raven, and he asks the raven a series of questions, hoping for a positive response. However, the raven doesn't comply and instead answers, nevermore. Poe reportedly told his friends and family that he had just written the greatest poem ever and even sent a copy of The Raven overseas to Elizabeth Barrett, hoping for her approval. Instead, she was quite dismissive. It wouldn't be until she discovered that Poe had given her books glowing reviews that she recanted her snide comments and wrote him an apology. Poe seemed to forgive her because he dedicated the poem to her once it was published in the November issue of The Mirror. The very next day, according to Montague, Poe woke up to find himself famous. Quote, the Raven became the most popular poem that any American had ever written, and it would be published in periodicals across the country. There were imitations of it and parodies, and the word nevermore was on everyone's lips. Unquote. But by the end of 1845, Poe was back on the bottle, and one can only guess that his sudden rise in fame was the trigger. He left the mirror and started work at the Broadway Journal, where he wasn't much liked. He started getting into fights with people in bars, and his constant hangovers made him cancel important lectures. Luckily, he was in New York City, a hub for writers, and he became close friends with some of America's finest, including Washington Irving, who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and James Fenimore Cooper, author of Last of the Mohicans. During this time, Poe wrote The Imp of the Perverse, a short story about a man accused of murder who is made to do things he doesn't want to by an imp. According to Montague, quote, just how personal is The Imp of the Perverse to Edgar Allan Poe? Some have suggested that it reflects his own imp and is an attempt to justify some of his more irrational behavior, unquote. In October of 1845, for $50, Poe was asked to read The Imp and the Raven to a large audience in Boston, but Poe notoriously hated the city. According to Montague, quote, He had described the city scathingly as the chief habitation in this country of literary hucksters and phrasemongers, unquote. 
Poe also hated Boston's most famous writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who felt he was a mystic for mysticism's sake. He also hated how pretentious Bostonians were, that they did not seem to recognize that there were other great American writers not from their city. Poe spoke in Boston, but his condescending opening speech was met with disgust by the Bostonians, and by the time he got around to reading The Raven, the majority of the audience had already left. Some good news did manifest later that year, though. The publishing company, Wiley & Putnam, published a book of Poe's poetry featuring The Raven. Although the book received positive reviews and sold well, Poe turned it sour by writing a self-deprecating preface on how he didn't feel that any of the work chosen to be in the book was worth reading. That same month, more good news for Poe when his boss at the Broadway Journal decided to retire. Although his boss felt that Poe was absurd and complained about him constantly, he knew that Poe was the only one capable of keeping the magazine going. Edgar, finally, owned his own magazine. In December of 1845, Poe published a fictional story that was reminiscent of a factual one. Written in the form of a letter sent to the Broadway Journal, the story, entitled The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, is about a doctor who attempts hypnosis on a man dying from tuberculosis, and strange happenings occur. Many people throughout the States and England believe the story to be real, while Poe's friend hailed the story as a master in fiction. However, by the end of the month, Poe was losing control over keeping the journal going. He begged and pleaded for loans from friends, which he received, but never repaid. By the beginning of 1846, the Broadway journal was done for, and Poe was without a job. In fact, Poe would never work in the literary journal business ever again. With a sick wife barely hanging on by a thread, an elderly mother-in-law, and no money, Poe drank himself into a stupor in the empty space that once was the space that hosted the journal. These were the final years of Edgar Allan Poe, and they were only getting darker. By February of 1846, Poe began accepting attention from women other than his young wife. Elizabeth Ellett, who was a poet that Poe critiqued in one of his magazines, started sending him love letters. Fanny Osgood, another poet, who was married, also started sending him love letters. Elizabeth discovered this and became jealous. She was even more jealous when she discovered that Virginia encouraged her husband's friendship with Fanny and invited her over for tea. Surprisingly, Virginia was okay with Poe's new lady friends. Maybe it was because she was dying and wanted him to find happiness, or maybe she liked the attention that her husband was getting, knowing that in the end, she was still his wife. Either way, Elizabeth was upset that Fanny had weaseled her way into the Poe home. Elizabeth began sending letters to Poe in German, asking him to call her residence and have sex with her. Poe, who didn't quite understand German as well as Elizabeth, didn't seem to get it. Angry and embarrassed that Poe did not fall for her seductive letters, she asked that they be returned to her. Poe refused, so Elizabeth sent her brother to the Poe residence where he threatened Poe's life. Elizabeth also threatened Fanny and promised to destroy her reputation in marriage. Fanny's husband, Samuel, was not about to have his wife's life ruined and asked Elizabeth to apologize. Remember Fanny, she'll reappear later in Poe's life. The family moved out of Manhattan to a little white cottage now located in the Bronx at 192nd Street. Poverty was not new to the Poe family, but they had sunk to a new level. Poe was also at war with writer and critic Thomas Dunn English. The two tried to sue each other, and when the case went to court, English ran off to Washington, making Poe the winner of the case and earning him over $200 in damages. According to Montague, quote, While his war with Thomas Dunn English was now in full flow, Poe wrote the revenge fantasy The Cask of Amontillado, the story of a man taking revenge on someone who has insulted him, unquote. Our narrator, Montressor, tells the reader that he has been pushed to his limit and now must take revenge on his en- his enemy, Fortunato. During a carnival, our narrator tells a drunken and costume-wearing Fortunato that he has a cask of the Spanish sherry Amontillado. The sherry is rare where they live, so Fortunato does not believe the character actually owns it. Montressor suggests that they go into his wine cellar to look at the sherry. They descend into the cellar, and Fortunato begins to cough wildly and lose his footing due to his drunkenness. When they arrive, Montressor tells Fortunato that just ahead, in a niche within the wall, the Amontillado is there. 
Fortunato enters and Montressor grabs him and chains him to the wall. Fortunato sobers up and tries to escape the change and then begins to laugh, thinking that Montressor is playing a joke. His laughter soon turns to cries as he realizes that Montressor is building a wall over the entrance of the niche. Unfortunately for Fortunato, this is no joke. The story was published in Godey's Lady Book in November 1846. It is unclear what Poe's compensation was, if any. By the end of the year, the Poe family was in the worst financial state they had ever been in. Virginia was more ill than ever, and Poe and his mother-in-law were also starting to get sick. Now that Poe was a semi-famous author, it wasn't long before newspapers got a hold of the stories surrounding his illness and poverty. As time went on, Poe and his mother-in-law's health began to improve. Virginia's, however, did not. On January 30, 1847, at the young age of 24, Virginia Poe passed away from her long battle with tuberculosis. Poe's landlord for the cottage felt so sorry for Poe and his mother-in-law that he offered a space in his family's crypt so that Virginia wouldn't have to be buried like a pauper. According to Montague, quote, Poe understandably fell to pieces. He had watched his young wife slowly die for five years. He ceased to care whether he lived or died, and on one occasion he collapsed unconscious and had to be carried to a doctor, unquote. It would be almost a year before Poe was able to write again. He finally had a poem, a prose poem, entitled Eureka. After years of complaining about Bostonian's obsession with mysticism, Eureka is arguably a very mystical poem. By February of 1848, Poe jumped into lecturing again in New York and decided to do a piece on God and the cosmos. The event was a huge, pathetic flop. Poe droned on and on about spiritualism and philosophy and then ended the night begging for money so that he could start his own literary magazine. The audience and Poe's friends were absolutely horrified. Everyone was certain Poe was losing his mind. And that wasn't the only thing. According to Montague, quote, In the last years of his life, Poe embarked on three disastrous relationships with other women. The first one after Virginia's death was Mary Louise Shue, who just so happened to be Virginia's nurse up until her death. Shu was extremely religious and had many friends in her church, and when she and Poe became infatuated with each other, Shu's friends felt that she was putting her faith in danger by courting a man who had wrote such strange fiction. Eventually, Shu chose her church family over Edgar, and he, distraught over being unable to change her mind, began drinking again. Annie Richmond would be Poe's next love. There was just one problem. Annie was already married. Annie and Poe met through a mutual friend, and Annie invited Poe over to her home often. Poe was not shy about his feelings for Annie, and he sent her numerous love letters and poems. Eventually, Annie's husband found out, and the affair ended as quickly as it had started. However, before the affair ended, Annie promised to be by Poe's side if he was ever on his deathbed. Poe's next failed love was Sarah, a.k.a. Helen Whitman. A poet in her own right, Helen wrote a lovely piece called To Edgar A. Poe, which appeared in the home journal. Poe, flattered by the poem, wrote one for her called To Helen. In early September of 1848, Poe spent four days with Helen, and after he left, he sent her many love letters, calling her his, quote, Helen of a Thousand Dreams, unquote, and even proposing to her. Helen, who eventually found out about Poe's other women, did not think that they were right for each other, and so she denied his proposal. But Poe did not accept her answer and wrote her again at the beginning of October, begging her to reconsider turned off by Poe's neediness, she did not reconsider, and so Poe wrote a suicide note and sent it to Annie, his ex, letting her know that his death was coming and wanted to remind her of her promise of being near him by his deathbed. (sighs) Poe went to Boston, where he swallowed a lethal amount of drugs. At the last minute, however, he decided against suicide and expelled the drugs from his stomach. By November, Helen was beginning to come around to the idea of marrying Poe, That is, until he arrived on her doorstep, drunk as a skunk. 
Helen said of the incident, quote, The tones of his voice were appalling and rang through the house. Never have I heard anything so appalling, unquote. One would think that this would have turned Helen off from Poe for good, but nope. She felt pity for him and promised to marry him if he promised her that he would stop drinking. He promised, and so the two were officially engaged. But the drama wasn't over yet. Remember Fanny Osgood? Well, she found out that Poe was engaged to Helen, so she called upon Helen and advised her against the marriage, telling her about the scandal that involved her and Elizabeth Ellett. Two days before the wedding, which was to take place on Christmas Day of 1848, Helen canceled their engagement and sent Poe packing. Poe tried to change her mind again and again, but her mother, who answered all of her letters, told him to just stay away. Poe tried to look for love and attention from anyone who would accept him, and Annie Richmond seemed to be the only one. Poe sent her several more letters calling her his spiritual wife, but Annie's husband knew that Poe's love was more than spiritual. Mr. Richmond once again turned Poe away from his wife, and Poe, realizing that he was hurting Annie more than himself, decided to finally leave her alone. By the start of 1849, Poe was writing again, and he wrote a short story entitled Hop Frog about a little person who murders a king in order to protect his delicate female friend named Tripita. There were many autobiographical elements in Hop Frog, and it's even more interesting that Poe would write such a story towards the end of his life, even though he did not know he was dying soon. According to Montague, quote, it has been suggested that Hop Frog is Poe's revenge on Elizabeth Ellet, that she is the king. Other biographical elements may be found in the fact that Hop Frog is kidnapped from home and presented to the king, the king in Poe's case being John Allen and he is given another name, like Poe, when he was adopted by the Allens. Tripita could be seen as Virginia, but Montague argues that it makes more sense that she is actually Annie Richmond. Poe was becoming more and more depressed that year, and his mother-in-law, Maria, was becoming more and more worried. While Poe was away in Boston for a lecture, he was found wandering the streets in a drunken stupor, penniless, and with only one shoe on. He wrote to Maria soon after, telling her that he no longer had any reason to live. Many of Poe's literary and non-literary friends joined together to raise money for him and Maria. Poe used some of the money to travel to Richmond, Virginia in September of 1849 for his next lecture. While in Richmond, he reconnected with an old friend, Elmira Royster. Remember her? Her husband had just recently passed and had left her a great sum of money. One Sunday morning, Poe knocked on her door and proposed to Elmira, and at first she thought he was just joking, but Poe was dead serious. She accepted his proposal, even though her grown children were very much against it. For the first time in a long while, Poe was finally happy again. He left Richmond, a newly engaged man, and boarded a steamboat headed for Baltimore. After Baltimore, he would transfer to New York to retrieve his mother-in-law, Maria, and return to Richmond to marry his wealthy childhood sweetheart. Life couldn't get any better. According to Montague, quote, Arriving in Baltimore, he disembarked and went drinking. It would prove to be his final binge. He met up with some old friends who insisted he join them in a glass of whiskey. It was his first alcohol in three months, and he had soon drunk himself senseless. For the next six days, no one has any idea what became of him, unquote. It is speculated that Poe did his binge drinking at the Horse You Came In On Saloon, which is located on Thames Street in Baltimore, but this has never been 100% proven. You can learn more about the Horse You Came In On Saloon when you read Danny's blog, Wanderlust on a Budget. Again, link is in the show notes. What is known is that a semi-conscious Poe was found in a gutter outside of the pub Gunner's Hall. He was rambling about some terrible hallucinations. For instance, he was certain Virginia was still alive, and he was wearing someone else's clothes. The young man who found him got in contact with a doctor friend of Poe's, Joseph Snodgrass. Poe was immediately taken to Washington College, where his hallucinations would continue for the next few days. Then, at 5 a.m. on October 7, 1849, Edgar Allan Poe was pronounced dead at the age of 40. As it is well known, no one is quite sure what killed him. 
Some speculate that Poe suffered from hypoglycemia, aka low blood sugar, and some even claimed he had liver disease. Others have said that Poe might have died from cooping, which was an alleged form of electoral fraud in the United States. Unwilling participants were forced to vote, often several times over, for a particular candidate in an election. These participants were normally drugged or were forced to become intoxicated and dressed in a variety of costumes and sent to the polls multiple times throughout the day to vote. Whatever might have been the cause, it didn't change the fact that Poe was buried in a cheap coffin in the Poe family plot at Baltimore's Presbyterian Church. Check out Wanderlust on a Budget to learn where you can visit the site. Only a few family members were able to make the brief funeral. Maria was not one of them. Poe's cousin Nielsen, the one who tried to take Virginia away, was very sweet and ordered a tombstone for his dead cousin. However, Poe was unable to catch a break even in death, as the tombstone was accidentally destroyed in a freight train accident. So for years, Poe was buried in an unmarked grave. According to Montague, quote, Meanwhile, Poe's last complete poem, the much-loved and much-adapted Annabelle Lee, was hurried into print. Composed in May 1849, it explores the death of a beautiful woman with whom the narrator was in love, and his love for her remains even in death. His love for her is so great that the angels are jealous of it, unquote. It's no doubt that Poe's life was a miserable one, but we can only find hope that his soul has found some peace in the afterlife. According to the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore, quote, by 1865, a movement had begun under the leadership of Miss Sarah Sigourney Rice to provide for a new monument to Baltimore's neglected poet. Through a combination of pennies accumulated by students, gifts from friends, and a variety of benefits, half of the necessary amount was raised by 1871, unquote. By 1875, the new memorial stone was finished and Poe's body, along with wife Virginia and mother-in-law Maria's bodies, were moved to the front of the churchyard and placed under the new stone. Poe himself might be long gone, but I think it's safe to say that his work and legacy has lived on. Like mentioned before, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was inspired to create the world's greatest detective, Sherlock Holmes, because of Poe's detective Dupin. Poe is lovingly considered America's evil grandfather, and has inspired numerous American authors, including F. Scott Fitzgerald, Vladimir Nabokov, H.P. Lovecraft, and Stephen King. Poe's influence doesn't stop there. If you listen to our special episode on actor Vincent Price, you'll know that Price himself was a huge fan of Poe and appeared in a number of films based on his work. Most of these films were produced by genre producer Roger Corman, another Poe fan, and also starred a number of other actors who loved Poe. Famed macabre director Tim Burton was also influenced by Poe's work and paid tribute to him, as well as Vincent Price, in his short film, Vincent. A great many musicians have been inspired by Poe's prose, too. Queen, Nightwish, Stevie Nicks, The Beatles, Lou Reed, The White Stripes, Utada Hikaru, Susie and the Banshees, Tangerine Dream, and even the insane clown posse. And that's not even the half of it. Poe motivated a number of people to become cryptographers because of his short story, The Gold Bug, one of which was American William Friedman, who used his skills in cryptography during World War II. Edgar Allan Poe's work is so ingrained into our system that it's impossible for us not to connect to his prose and understand the sorrow, anger, hate, or even jealousy that jumps from the page and attaches to our hearts and our very soul. It's without a doubt that Poe, even in some small way, helped bring out the goth in all of us. Wow, isn't that so true, though? Like, oh my god. For real. Uh, <laughs> this man. This poor man. Oh my god. So tragic, though. <laughs> Tragical. Oh Well, you guys, that's it for this special episode of Good Morning, Nancy. This season, we'll be doing a full-length episode almost every week because come mid-February, I'm going to be taking some maternity leave. And yeah, so we're going to be squeezing in as many full-length episodes as we can. Of course, we'll still be doing Hulu's Into the Dark reviews on Patreon. And if you, and if I find time, like I'm going to watch any new horror films, like that I can like and put those on Patreon too. I cannot make any promises. I have no idea what it's like to be a mom. So this could be real interesting. Um, oh, 
we are so excited. <laughs> so exciting. Um, when we get close to my due date, we'll make more announcements surrounding like the dates that will be gone. So stay tuned for that. Until then, I really hope you guys like this season. It's another mixed bag of a lot of different types of horror films, but they have all been really fun to research. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this season. Yeah, guys, this season is a lot of fun, so make sure you spread the word and tell your friends about Good Morning Nancy. It also helps if you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Oh, and you still have time to get some Good Morning Nancy merch, too, so check out our shop by heading over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch. Click the shirt icon, and that will take you to our shop. We've got sweatshirts and coffee mugs and hats over there, so treat yourself to some merch. Yes, you have time to get some before Christmas, so go Yay! ahead and do it. Do it, do it, do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, thank you so much. We'll see you all next week. And as always, we love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.